presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. With the increasing survival of preterm infants, parents and caretakers are having to make more difficult decisions than ever before. How are prenatal consultations beneficial? And when is counseling appropriate? You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Channel for Medical Professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining us today is our guest, Dr. Jonathan Fanaroff. Dr. Fanaroff is the Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He is also the Associate Medical Director at the Neonatology Intensive Care Unit at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital and the Director of the Rainbow Center for Pediatric Ethics in Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. To begin with, can you give us an overview of the size of this patient population and trends in its growth, if there are any? Sure. This is actually a very small part of the overall birth population in the United States. To put it in perspective, there's about 4 million births a year in the United States. Of those, about 500,000 are preterm, so the premature population is very large. But the very small preemies, the very low birth weight infants, are really only about 60,000 a year, which is about 1.5% of the population. Can you define what a low birth weight is or what we talk about when we say a low gestational age? So a full-term pregnancy runs about 40 weeks, and prematurity is defined as those babies born before 37 weeks gestation. And the limits of viability, the smallest preemies, really start about 22 to 26 weeks gestation. The bulk of premature infants are what we call late preterm infants, and they're 34 to 37 weeks. And there's an increasing recognition that for that population, you know, that they can have a number of problems as well as the traditional extreme preemies. You've recently written a paper in pediatrics on prenatal consultation. Could you explain what these are and how early they should be done and, and why? So a lot of times with uh, premature delivery, there's, you know, things are going fine with the pregnancy and then all of a sudden a problem develops and decisions need to be made between the obstetrician, the neonatologist, and the parents. And to provide compassionate and ethical care, parents really need to be involved in these decisions. And the role of the prenatal consultation is really to provide the parents with information and begin a dialogue so that we can determine what the best course of action should be if the baby, or in many cases babies, are to be delivered early. So this consultation could happen almost any time. It could be prenatal, it could be in the delivery room, it could be following birth trauma. It could be, say, after efforts had been attempted to resuscitate the baby in the NICU. Right. The worst scenario is when we're called to delivery and the baby is out or coming out within a minute and we have no chance at all to discuss with the parents what's going on. The best case scenario for these prenatal consultations are when the uh, problem is determined, but there's still time to determine a course of action. And we face all sorts of situations in terms of providing the prenatal consultation, and some of them can be very challenging. I would imagine, being a parent myself, that the biggest thing I would want to know is the uncertainty that's associated with the future of this neonate at this particular time. Is that correct? And how do you introduce this subject of uncertainty with parents who are very vulnerable at that time? I think that the best way to introduce the concept of uncertainty is to be honest and to 
let the parents know the things that you're fairly sure of and the things that you're not. I like to tell parents that we don't have a crystal ball. And so we can't always tell exactly what the future is and that things may be different. I always tell parents in a prenatal consultation that after the baby comes out, things may be different. The baby may be much more mature or less mature or much bigger or smaller than we had anticipated. You've brought up this concept that the baby may be older, might weigh more, the gestational age may be incorrect, and therefore the statistics that you're now going to tell them may be not correct. So how accurate are these ages and weights that we hang so much on? It really depends on the on the situation. So the best case scenario in terms of dating is, and actually in vitro fertilization and other reproductive technologies are a large part of the premature population because these are very high-risk pregnancies. So in some cases, we know exactly what the date is because we know when the zygote was implanted. But for many of the situations, parents roll uh, or moms come in and they've had limited prenatal care. We don't have access to all the information. And in those situations, we have to rely on ultrasound estimates or mom's recall of her last menstrual period, and that dating can be very uncertain. These consultations sound like an opportunity to develop trust with, in this case, the surrogate of the patient. Would you say that's the case? Absolutely. The the real goal of the prenatal consultation is to establish a partnership and a collaborative and compassionate relationship with the parents. If they don't trust what you're saying or they don't think that you have them or their baby's best interest in mind, then it's very difficult to work together. Very often you decide to not treat. This may lead to what has been described in the literature, and I'd like you to expound on it, the treatment dilemma. Could you tell me what that means? Sure. The, the treatment dilemma relates to the one of the basic ethical principles of non-maleficence, which is that we don't want to do harm. So if we decide that we're not going to treat a baby in terms of aggressive care, we should always provide comfort care and care for the, the parents and the infant. But if we decide we're not going to aggressively treat and the infant survives, and then that situation is worse off because we delay treating, then that's a dilemma. And similarly, if we decide to aggressively treat and we end up with an infant who, where we've prolonged their suffering or we've increased, you know, we, we end up with a baby with considerable morbidity, then that can be a dilemma as well. So that's really the concept of the treatment dilemma, that we don't want to do harm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Children's Health Month on ReachMD Channel for Medical Professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest is Dr. Jonathan Fanaroff. Dr. Fanaroff is the Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, the Associate Medical Director of the Neonatology Intensive Care Unit at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital, and the Director of Rainbow Center for Pediatric Ethics in Cleveland, Ohio. And we're discussing the benefits of prenatal consultation and neonatal ethics. Thank you again for joining us. Could you tell me, does the American Academy of Pediatrics have guidelines for neonatal resuscitation? So neonatal resuscitation is generally determined by a program called NRP, which stands for Neonatal Resuscitation Program, and that's trained over 2 million providers. It's the national standard, really, for neonatal resuscitation in this country. The American Academy of Pediatrics endorses the NRP and also has their own policies through their Committee on Bioethics and their Committee on the Fetus and Newborn. And really, all of those programs and organizations really stress 
two things. The first is that parents really should have the primary role in decision-making when it is unclear what the best interests of the baby are. And in those situations where it is considered clear, in other words, when it's clear that no amount of treatment is going to save this baby or that this baby clearly needs treatment, then the physician is obligated to go ahead and do what's in the best interest of that baby. But in those situations where we're unsure, then both of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the neonatal resuscitation program say that in the gray zone, it really should be up to the parents who are in the best position to make decisions for their baby. We have been talking about how gestational age and weight are so important in being able to prognosticate for the parents. We're always looking, though, for other ways, a crystal ball, so to speak. And is there any physiologic way, certain measurements that we try to rely on that may help us? Unfortunately, there is no perfect tool. So one of the babies in neonatal intensive care units actually have a scoring system for how sick they are, and that's called SNAP scoring. But unfortunately, babies who are very ill based on SNAP scoring Many of those babies who live have high scores, and many of those babies who die have high scores. So it's, you can't really use that as a tool to predict who's going to do well. Well, how about if you're a neonatologist, you've got a lot of clinical experience, you look at the baby, and many of us in clinical practice have said, you know, I've got a clinical feeling about this baby, or in my case, being an internist, a feeling about people in, who are maybe turning sour from sepsis. You have a certain particular clinical experience. Does that help you prognosticate? Yeah, you would think it would, but unfortunately, the literature shows us that it probably doesn't. And some of the best studies have been done at the University of Chicago by a neonatologist ethicist named William Meadow. And he did a, a really simple study where basically they went to the NICU every day with a basket of candy, and they asked experienced nurses and experienced neonatologists, do you think this baby is, is going to die or not? And what they found, that of the infants that they predicted would die, only one-third of those infants, in fact, died. So clinical intuition, unfortunately, isn't very accurate at all. And now looking for other straws, how about the use of steroids, being a single baby, being a female? Does any of this help? Interestingly, some of the more recent research which has done, there's a network sponsored by the National Institute of Health of neonatal intensive care units across the country. And when they looked at over 4,000 babies and analyzed the data, they did determine that there are a number of other factors besides your gestational age, besides being a 24-weeker, that are important. And the presence of steroids is one of them. Gender is as well. Female infants, for reasons that are not entirely clear, do better than male premature infants. And single babies do better than twins or triplets or other multiple gestation. So when they put gestational age, estimated weight, antenatal steroids, which also uh, help mature the lungs and improve survival, gender, and whether the pregnancy is a singleton pregnancy or twins or triplets, then they came up with an actual estimator or calculator that would give survival data based on over 4,000 babies. And this outcomes estimator is actually available online through the NIH. So you can, when doing a prenatal consultation, you can actually go and plug in the data and have some relatively objective statistics to share with the families. So where does this leave the parent as far as decisional capacity? I mean, they're supposed to be making a decision 
for their infant. And, and indeed, maybe their interests may be separate than the patient or the infant. Right. And the fact that the parents aren't making the decision for themselves but are making the decision for their child means that there are some limitations on their power, in, in a sense, to make the decision. So if a parent says, well, I know that a 32-week babies are premature babies by about two months, they do have higher risks of long-term learning problems and, and other issues, but their overall survival is very high and their overall morbidity is relatively low. And if a parent said, I don't want you to resuscitate my 32-weeker, most neonatologists in this country would say, well, I'm sorry, that's not really your decision to make. So what we do is we share with the parents the best information we have because even though we don't have a perfect tool to predict, we at the end of the day, we have to make a decision. We have to decide what we're going to do at the delivery. And through the prenatal consultation and meeting with the families, our goal is to give the parents the best possible information to make for their child. So at this particular junction, the doctor has to be involved in the value system of the parents. Exactly. Ultimately, it's not that the parents alone make the decision. Ultimately, it's not that the physician and the clinical team alone makes the decision. It's that this is supposed to be a collaborative process and a shared decision-making process. I remember in 1963, Patrick Kennedy, who was the premature son of John Kennedy, died of hyaline membrane disease, and it made all of us think about taking care of premature children. The media often makes it sound like every premature baby survives. Do you think more education has to be done for the general public? Absolutely, and the media likes to focus on miracle babies. Those are the happy stories, and it's wonderful they show you know these, these tiny babies, and then they show them later on, and, and everyone's happy. And I've had patients where there was a 21-week baby, the, one of the smallest babies to survive in Florida a couple of years ago, and it was made national news, and, and parents now say, well, how come my baby is not like that? And, and it's, it's very difficult because you have to say, well, that baby was, you know, was one in a million. And unfortunately, that's just not how it works out for most of these babies. So we do have to educate and you know, sort of fight the media in a sense. With having smaller babies survive, are we going to see more intracerebral bleeding? Or are we going to see more blindness, which is something that we've always associated with prematures? That's very important research. And in fact, many of the NICUs in the neonatal research network have follow-up clinics where they follow these babies and say, not only how are they doing at a year, but how are they doing at school age? How are they doing when they become adults? And there is a concern that as we're keeping smaller and smaller babies alive, that it may be at the risk of longer-term neurodevelopmental problems. Early on in your discussion of consultation, you actually touched on palliative care. Do you bring this up in a consultation when you've established, say, trust with the parents? Sure. And I think that that's you know, one of the important points I was trying to get across in the article is that even if you're deciding not to do aggressive resuscitation, you are always caring for that patient and their family. And palliative care is really the principle that we can't always save the baby. We can't always fix the problems, but we can always make sure that the baby's comfortable and that he or she is treated with dignity and respect and really try and make the experience, you know, maximize the time that this baby has on earth if we can't save him or her. Today we've been talking with Dr. Jonathan Fanaroff. I really want to thank you for joining us today. We've been talking about taking care of our smallest and sickest patients. 
often involving some of the most difficult ethical issues that we face in the medical world today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.